we are beginning a new series in the book of Ecclesiastes. And I've read Ecclesiastes before. I've never preached it. And as I began to study this week, uh, I realized that the book of Ecclesiastes is a bit of an enigma. If you know who Winston Churchill is, if you don't, that's sad, but I'll give you a break on that one. But if you know who Winston Churchill is, Winston Churchill once said, referring to Russia during World War II, he said, Russia is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside of an enigma. If you don't know what any of those things are, he's basically saying it's a giant puzzle. The actions of Russia are a puzzle. And that's the book of Ecclesiastes. If you don't know Christ, even if you do know Christ, and you study Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes can be a bit of an enigma. It can be a bit of an enigma, a puzzle. I don't know about y'all, but have you ever received a gift from someone that's a loved one or a friend, and you know that you can't just get rid of it. It's kind of a weird gift. It's maybe, you know, one of those odd sweaters or a tie you know you'll never wear. Something that you've received as a gift. And you, you can't just get rid of it because you know, like, if you got it from your mom or maybe you got it from one of your kids, they're going to come over to the house and they're going to ask you about it. So you can't just get rid of it, so you got to hang on to it, but you don't really know what to do with it. It's a poor analogy, I know, but that's kind of like the book of Ecclesiastes. In the church, as I was studying through Ecclesiastes, many scholars were saying, we really just don't know what to do with Ecclesiastes. Many churches don't preach it. Teachers don't teach it because it's difficult. So I thought, well, within my first year of pastoring a church, that I would tackle a book that's not really well known, not really well understood, and so let's dive into the book of Ecclesiastes. If you haven't been to church ever before, maybe you haven't been to church in a long time, say, well, today maybe really wasn't the best day for me to come. <laughs> not a super encouraging message, right? Everything is futility. We're going to get into really the study and the meaning of the book of Ecclesiastes, but the point here is, is that Koheleth, this teacher, the preacher, this person who has lived all of these years, who's pursued wisdom, he's gained knowledge, he's done all of these things that we'll get into in chapters as we go on, he comes to this conclusion, Hevel of Hevelim, absolute futility, says the teacher, Hevel of Hevelim, everything is Hevel, everything is smoke. Everything is meaningless. Everything is worthless. Everything is vapor. Have you ever tried to catch vapor? Have you ever tried to seize smoke in your hand? It's, a, it's an act in futility. You can't hold on to it. You can't hold on to a breath. You can't hold on to vapor. But the good news is, is that Jesus Christ redeems all things. Jesus Christ redeems all things. If you look at this scripture verse, this is from the New Testament. It says that all scripture, and you may not recognize that next part, that's the Greek word, theopanoustos, which means God breathed. Thea, God, panoustos, wind, breath, spirit. All scripture is God breathed, thus profitable for teaching, conviction, correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete. Fully equipped for every good worth. That Second Timothy three sixteen through seventeen. As it turns out, Ecclesiastes is part of that theos or theopanustos. 
It's part of God-breathed Scripture. It would be easy for us, for someone to years ago have read through Ecclesiastes and said, well, this doesn't really inspire. This doesn't make me want to get up in the morning and be like, yes! How many of y'all have like verses from Ecclesiastes that are like when you really want encouragement? You say, there just aren't that many, right? There just aren't that many that people say, that's my life verse in Ecclesiastes. Is that everything's futility. Yeah, that gets me fired up for today. Everything's futility. Woo! We just don't. But we have to understand it, right? As Christians, because this is part of the sum of Scripture, the sum of the Bible. It's God's words. And if we don't have a sound biblical theology, if we don't have a comprehensive sound biblical theology, which includes Ecclesiastes, then there's going to be a big part that's missing. We can't cut and paste together the parts that we like. I want you all to look uh, verse 8. Verse 8 in Ecclesiastes, it says, All things are wearisome. All things are wearisome. If you look at the stuff that comes after that, man is unable to speak or communicate. The eye is not satisfied with seeing. The eye is not satisfied with seeing. You realize that in Solomon's day there was no internet? but yet there was still sin. There was still the thing that we call today that I won't go into a, a detailed description, but would a lot of men get caught up on the internet? See, the reality is, is that the eye, we're constantly taking in images, but it's never full. It's never satisfied. Somebody commented a while back, they said that, you know, Pastor, you use a lot of movie and TV references in your sermons. And I said, yeah, I do. I do use a lot of those. Because I think it communicates to a lot of people. Is that if, you're, if, you, if you have cable or if you have some sort of uh, multi-channel television, whatever, direct TV, whatever it may be, you go through, y'all notice how years ago, some of us that are a little bit older, that you turned on the television, how many channels did we have? We had three, you know, ABC, NBC, CBS. And sometimes, you know, if you flipped that one little knob that was said UHF, you could get that kind of fuzzy, you know, kind of channel, the UHF one, and you could kind of almost see stuff between the bands. Kids are sitting here going, we have no idea what this guy's talking about. That's okay. See, today they can go to the TV and they can turn it on and they can find anything. See, if food is your addiction, there's a whole network. There's a food network, right? You can watch the Food Network 24-7. If other people are your addiction, you can watch people who are hoarders. You can watch people who have all kinds of personality, emotional, social disorders. You can watch that all day long. If you just want to sit down and watch weather all day, you can watch a weather channel. See, we have these things that are addictions that are wired into our DNA because we're fallen. And if we deny the fall... If we deny the fall, as you go through Ecclesiastes, he never really gets to it. We're going to touch on this. But he never really gets to the fact that it's like there's something bigger than stuff. There's something bigger than the what of life. I want you to look at verse 3. What does a man gain for all his efforts he labors at under the sun? See, he asks a what question instead of a why question. What does he gain? What does a man gain for all of his efforts under the sun? What do you gain? 
And then the rest of Ecclesiastes, he goes through and he tries to explain that when you're trying to gain something, when it's your desire and your pursuit is for that self-fulfillment, what's going to happen? It's always going to come up short, lacking. You can pursue wisdom. You can pursue knowledge. You can pursue pleasure. You can pursue riches. You can pursue projects. You can pursue a whole host of things. And at the end of it, Koheleth, the teacher, most likely Solomon, says, likely the richest man who ever lived, says that it's meaningless. It's vapor. So as Christians, why is it that we're still doing that which Solomon said is vapor? Say, well, we're not doing that, Pastor. Aren't we? Aren't we really doing that? No response. It's okay. The reality is, is yes, we are. We're pursuing things that Koheleth in Ecclesiastes says it's futile. We pursue after those things, and then at the end of it, we want to tack on a little bit of Jesus. I want to drive my Bentley, and as long as I put a fish on the back of it, well, then it's been redeemed for Christ. You say, well, I don't drive a Bentley. I don't drive a Ferrari. But you have to have a new car, don't you? Because that old one just isn't going to do, right? Maybe for you, it's like, oh, that's not my sin. I don't need a new car. So I'm better than that other person. That's the Jerry Springer mentality. As we tune in, we watch, because watching that craziness makes us feel good about our sin. At least my sin isn't that over there. Isn't that why as Christians, part of why we pick on the LGBT community is because it's out there. It's, it's flagrant. It's blatant. It's like we can point it out and we can say, it's sin. But then that little sin that's ours that little pet project that we have, that little sin thing we've got going on at home, the little thing that we're not going to tell our spouse about, that little thing that we don't want to go to a counselor and discuss because it's just too dark. Because I kind of like it a little bit. I want to hold on to that. But at least I'm not one of them. I'm not one of those people. Kohela says, it's everything is futile. It's all smoke. He says the eyes are always seeing, but they're never satisfied. Our ears are always hearing, but they're never filled. There's no remembrance of those who came before. How many of y'all know your great-great-great-grandfather's first name? Raise your hand. We got one, two. Connor raised his hand. He's lying. He doesn't know. That's my son. He probably doesn't even know my dad's name. But he raised his hand because Papa said, raise your hand. Absolute futility in all things. I want to put something up here, and those of you who maybe are involved in business, you might recognize this. It's something that a guy named Simon Sinek made popular. He's not a Christian, but that doesn't mean this isn't true. So you say, well, now our pastor is preaching secular theology. No, I'm not. I'm preaching truth. It's something that this guy, Simon Sinek, popularized. It's called the Golden Circle. And I just wanted to use it to talk to us about maybe as a church and maybe as individuals and as Christians, why we fall short. See, the why is what has to drive everything that we do. The why has to drive everything that we do. As churches, my wife and I were talking about it this week, and said that church is really good about the what. Some of those of you who are new to church, maybe haven't been here to poetry in a while, 
the externals, a lot of the externals look the same, right? You come in, you're like, well, they have a sanctuary. That's a what? They have music. That's a what? They've got a pastor guy who stands up there and talks a lot. That's a what? They've got a parking lot. They've got a children's ministry. They've got programs and stuff that are going on. They got lots of what's, but so did the last place we visited. So why didn't we stay there? Well, because there was something missing. And so the whole time we spent core values talking about why. Beliefs drive behaviors. Beliefs manifest themselves as behaviors. So we talked about our core values and we said, what are the things that are important to God? Extreme hospitality, wisdom, unity, all of those things, those seven things that we talked about. But oftentimes as a church, as Christians, we miss the why and we do the what. Some will say, well, I don't drink. I've never drank a drop of alcohol in my life. Why? Why? I know that's a little scary for a Baptist preacher to be standing up in front of you and say, what's that guy talking about? Is someone going to go downstairs because of that? We would say as Baptists, absolutely. That's where they're going. Absolutely. You can't dance. You can't play cards. You can't drink. You can't, and we've got this list of all these things. See, we've got the what figured out. And then so we look at our ancestors and we look at traditions and we see the what, but then we never answer the question why. Why is it that we don't do those things? The reason why we don't drink is because when you drink, some people are going to lose control. And when they lose control, it ruins your testimony. And if you're going to stand in front of someone and you're going to say, my life is better because I've got Jesus, I was lost, now I'm found, I was dead, and now I'm alive. But yeah, I want to do the same things that y'all are doing. Drugs, alcohol, pornography, sex outside of marriage. I'm going to do this whole list of it. And we say, no, those are the what's. Why don't we do those things? Why don't we do those things? Because none of them bring honor and glory to God. None of them. But see, when we don't live that way, when we don't live out the why, people just see the what's and they're like, oh, that's another legalistic church that says we don't do this and we don't do that. What we do is we live out the why. And what is the why? What's the why? Bring honor and glory to God. The why is actually a who. This is a question that I was going to save for Sunday school, but I just can't. If there was nothing in it for us, if there was absolutely nothing in it for you, nothing, if there was nothing in it for you, would God still be worthy of all glory and all honor and all praise? Would he? But is that the way that we act? Is that the way that we live our lives? Is that when we wake up in the morning? Or do we look at God as a cosmic vending machine? You owe me something. You need to fix my back so that I don't have pain anymore. You need to fix my marriage. You need to give me a better job. You need to make sure. You need to do this. You need to, you need to do your part, God. Otherwise, you know what? I'm going to withhold my love. And we miss it because we don't understand the why. And we live that way so that the people who are out in this lost and broken world, they look at us and they say, there's nothing different about you. Because if there were, 
then the people that are Christians would be living in a way that if God never said another word, if he never did another thing, that he'd still be worthy of all praise and honor and glory. Do we live like that? Do we live like that? And I think we fall short. I think we do what really well? And people walk inside of our doors, and they say, yep, same old, same old. They got a children's program. They might even have one or two people who smile and say hi. They got a pastor. They do prayer meetings. And then they walk out and they're like, but something's missing. It's because we've never communicated the why. See, because we don't believe it. If we believed it, if we were living that why, then it would instruct the how. That's our mission. What's the mission of Poetry Baptist Church? That's one of the reasons why we went through this whole core values series. We went through it because why means, translates into how. You can have a how without a why and it's worthless. It's absolutely worthless. And we said a possible kind of, I told Christine, I said, I'm not trying to tell the church what our mission statement is. That's for us to decide. But I kind of gave them a big block of granite and say, let's chip away at this thing. And I kind of gave them a placeholder and I kind of threw it out there and I said, what's our mission? Anybody remember? To pursue, win, disciple, the lost, deluded, and disillusioned for Jesus Christ and his eternal glory. We can tweak it all we want as a church. See, but when the why is a who... And we want to glorify him because he's worthy of all praise, honor, and glory. And he's blessed us with eternal life when we put our faith in him, even though we never deserved it, even though we can't do anything to merit that. How do we respond? That's the how. That's our mission. Is because he did it for me and I didn't deserve it, I want to do it for you. I'm going to live my life in a way that communicates to you that he is the why. He's my purpose. And because of what he's done for me, I'm going to pursue, win, and disciple the lost, deluded, and disillusioned for him and his eternal glory. And then comes the what? Well, what does that look like? What does it look like? It looks like ministry, right? When God created Adam... He dedicated him, Genesis 2.15, dedicated him the garden to Abad and Shamar. He dedicated him there to serve, to minister, and to watch over. This is before sin. That's what we're still supposed to be doing. Because that's what God created us for. Well, I think Ephesians does a great job of addressing this. Kind of painting a picture. Ephesians 2, 4 through 7 reads, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when, even when we were dead in our trespasses. If that doesn't do something to you, if that doesn't stir something in your heart, I would really wonder and question whether or not you know him. I'm not trying to be judgmental. But when you know that you were dead and that you could do nothing that would ever merit what Christ did at the cross, even when we were dead in our trespass, it is by grace you have been saved. 
And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might display the surpassing riches of his grace demonstrated by his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Rick Warren's book, I've said this a few times in the past, The Purpose Driven Life. Years ago it was the best-selling book in the history of Christianity outside of the Bible. I don't know if that's still true, but the first sentence, I remember reading it within the first month or so of being saved. I opened it up, the first sentence says, it's not about you, and I closed the book back up, and it sat on a shelf for about six months. It's not about you, I said, it is about me. I closed it up and put it away. Is that where you still are? Are you still in that place where you say, it is about me? One thing I can say is that I was honest with myself, 33 years old, and I knew that it had been about me for 33 years. And that sin was still clinging. It was still hanging on to me. See, it's not about you. It's not about your fulfillment. Koheleth goes through this long thing of saying, what does a man gain for all his efforts? What if a man didn't gain anything for all his efforts? Does that mean we shouldn't do anything? Does it mean we should just stay in bed? You realize that we're a civilization and a culture that's filled with antidepressants more than every, every culture and civilization before us. If you're on them, I'm not ridiculing you. I'm not. I'm saying it's something that's wired into our culture. We've got kids who are ADHD that require medicine. Years ago, we just opened the back door and we ran outside. And then we ran crazy through the woods and the streets and rode our bikes, and now we can't do that anymore because we're worried that our kids are going to get kidnapped or molested or something horrible is going to happen to them. So we sit them in front of a tablet, in front of a TV, and then we wonder why we've got to pump them full of drugs. Because that's not what they're made for. They're not just made to run around aimlessly outside either. They're made to glorify God. All of our fulfillment, all of our contentment, all of our accomplishments... Even in Christian ministry, I shared this with the pastoral search committee. I got to the end of the interview process, and I sat at the end of that table in the Sunday school classroom over here, and I said, look, I don't know where y'all are going to land, and quite honestly, I don't care. And I don't mean for that to come across as crass or cocky. I said, all I know is that in my life is that I need to be faithful to the ministry that God has given me today. That's all I know how to do. That's it. That's all I know how to do. And so whether you hire me or you hire someone else doesn't even matter to me. It doesn't matter. See, because I could, I could win this job, I could be like, oh, they picked me, and then I find out three months, four months down the road how hard it is to be in a church that's gone through a horrible split where the pastor left and the elders left, and ministries are kind of in disarray, and people are holding things together, and they're tired. They love one another. It's an awesome place full of awesome people, but they're tired, and they're burned out. And you got certain people who are running four or five ministries at one time, and they're tired, and they need a break. And the wrong person comes in and takes over, and then they realize, oh, this is too hard. I think I'm going to go somewhere else. And then there's an implosion, and people are defeated. Yay, that's what victory looks like. No. 
Be faithful to the ministry that God has given you today. See, that's where Koheleth misses it. He never really redirects to Christ. I realize in the Old Testament, you can say, well, Christ wasn't there. He never really redirects to God. He does in a certain set extent, but it still turns into a what? You go into the final chapter and he says, this is the sum, this is, this is the fullness of humanity. What is it that we're supposed to do? Well, we're supposed to fear the Lord and obey his commands. And it's uninspiring. That's another what. He never gets to the why. Why? Why should I do those things? Why should I do those things? Why? Because that's the ministry that God has given you. Because he dedicated man in the garden to serve and to love and to watch over. That's what he put us here for. That's our purpose. Created in the image of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Eternally relational. That's how he made us. You may feel like today, well, it feels like a little bit, it feels like it's fallen just a little bit short. You know, it's, what's the good news? The good news is, is that Jesus is the why. If you read through Ecclesiastes and you read through that first chapter and you can keep reading through it and you could feel overwhelmed and say, well, if the pursuit of everything is futility, if it's smoke, if it's vapor, if it's meaningless, what's the point? The point is Jesus. And the fact is, is that he's worthy of all our, all our worship, all glory, all praise and honor. He went to a cross 2,000 years ago and he died for our sins while we were still dead in our trespass. And that's the gospel truth. That's the gospel. So as we continue this sermon series in the weeks to come, I want to keep directing y'all back to that circle. The why, how, and the what. Why is our purpose? To glorify God because Christ is worthy. The how, that's our mission. Pursue, win, disciple the lost, deluded, and disillusioned. And what? The what isn't tradition, guys. Ladies and gentlemen, it's not. The what is ministry. Regardless of what it is that God has called us to as a church, what he's called you to as an individual, that's ministry. Be faithful to the ministry that God has given you today. Be faithful to the ministry that God has given you today. And when we do that, we can't fail as a church. We can't fail as a church. We are going to reach the lost, deluded, and disillusioned. Do you know why? Do you all know why? Because that's the heart of God. He wants to reach us who are lost, deluded, and disillusioned. And he wants to reconcile us with God. Why? Because it brings honor and glory to his name. Today we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so as I'm praying, I'd like to invite our men to come forward and as we prepare to distribute the bread and the cup. God, we thank you for today. For those who have maybe come today for the first time, um, we're thankful, God, because we prayed that you would bless our congregation with new families, with new life, with new opportunities to pursue, win, and disciple the lost, deluded, and disillusioned for your glory. I pray that as the word is preached, 
from this pulpit every week, God, that it would land on hearts that aren't, aren't hard-packed soil, that it would land on good soil that you've prepared in advance, God, that it would dig deep and it would produce a harvest a hundred times that which is sown. That's what discipleship looks like, God. So today as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, Lord Jesus, we remember you. We remember the cross. We remember your incarnation. We remember the fact that you came here to tabernacle with us, that you rose from the grave, that you ascended to heaven, and you promised us that you're returning to take us to the Father's house. We love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.